Hello, and thank you for tuning in once again to Chill Island. It's time for a new podcast, this time with Colin Reed. Colin is a Belfast-based musician, a kind of renaissance man. He has released multiple studio albums. He's toured many countries around the world. He runs Belfast Guitar Orchestra and most recently leads talks on number theory, mathematics in nature, sacred geometry, things like that. He also just brings tremendous insight into any topic thrown at him, which pretty much makes him the perfect podcast guest. So I think you will find it insightful and interesting and fun. There was definitely times in this when uh, I was asking him questions, not even for the podcast anymore, just for me, because, you know, when it comes to like his creative process, uh, he's learned a lot. So creative people, I think, can stand to learn something from this. He looks at things from different angles. If you want to catch up with Colin, you can do that at colin-read.com. But I also suggest typing that into Facebook search bar so you can get his Facebook page so you will also find his monthly talks on number theory in Belfast. To give you an idea of his goal with these talks, he likens it to, when Terence McKenna said his goal was to raise the level of public discourse. So anyone who's inspired by McKenna is a friend of mine. I hope you enjoy this. Thank you very much for listening. Tremendous. Okay, we're good to go. So we were just talking about, I think it might be best because you're interested in lots of different things, but if we start with um, the roots of your artistic expression, everything, which is music. So, um, why don't you take us back? We've just been looking at your um, most recent record, which is unreleased. But um, where did it start? How did you start getting into music? I uh, started getting into music by playing my elder brothers and sisters' records. Mm-hmm. So that was albums like uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water, mm-hmm. uh, Rubber Soul. Uh, later on, uh, Dark Side of the Moon made an appearance. Mm-hmm. Some Zeppelin made an appearance. Okay, so transformation. Uh, yes, from the kind of softer acoustic uh-huh. stuff. Uh, well, I was kind of going through, but it was like my eldest sister had Bridge Over Troubled Water, and then uh, later on, my brother had Dark Side of the Moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first headphone experience was Shine On You Crazy Diamond mm-hmm. uh, by Pink Floyd. That's uh, interesting to say headphone experience. So before that, it was just all the vinyl player? Yeah, it was, we had an old square vinyl player. I don't think it had a headphone output. Okay. And then later we got the Music Centre, if anybody remembers those. Right. And that did have a headphone socket, so I was able to listen later at night um, and just fall into the world. Ah, okay. I never really thought about it like that, so it became a much more personal experience then. Uh, Well, you certainly encapsulated in your own world, and uh, yeah, I did listen to stuff quite loud. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose that transforms it. Because I I didn't go through the whole vinyl thing particularly. Um, but I remember getting my first CD player, certainly, and getting um, Back in Black, the ACDC. Wow. I my mind being blown. Utterly. <laughs> sit up at 11 at night, it just cranked up, you know, lying in bed as everyone else is asleep. Um, so I, I do, I can imagine that experience yeah. a little bit. Yeah, so that was good. That was really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I was 13, yeah, I suppose I started to emulate some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, played the acoustic for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. I managed to talk my parents into getting me an electric guitar. Nice. Yes. And yeah, would have played a bit of Zeppelin or that sort of Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, 
Yeah, and then later on, uh, yes, I, I found an old box of cassette tapes that I'd once owned. Okay. And I was shocked to see how much of an, an excess fan I'd been. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> I had practically all their albums. <laughs> yeah, but I liked that because um, the guitar there was it was riff-oriented, it was catchy, mm. and it was rhythmic. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I kind of got into that. I wouldn't describe it as funk playing, but, you know, rhythmic, a lot, mm. lot of action going well, on. Your music is definitely rhythmic. Great, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Do you think that's where it comes from in excess? <laughs> uh, you, you never, well, you never know where you're. You absolutely it, don't yeah. know, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I write um, sometimes odd meter music, so yeah. you'll be in 5 4 a while, for a while, and then you'll be in 7 8. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of trace that back to listening to Rush. Yeah, well, that would do it, all right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then a little bit of King Crimson, a little bit of Fripp going on, okay. and, you know, he's playing in Pi R Squared time. Mm-hmm. You know, over the imaginary number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Do you think that influenced the... Uh, do you think that gave you... Because we were just talking about how your latest album you've gone is a little bit more of a concept album. Yeah. Do you think that was in the pipeline from the Rush days, from the King Crimson, from the prog days, I should say? Yeah, uh, well, yes. I, I, certainly, I certainly looked back to that. So mm-hmm. I, I noticed that... Um, uh, trying to get people's attention or or the human attention span seemed to have diminished down to you know about a zapto second yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I thought I'm you know uh, I, I'm not enjoying this this fast you know this competition for attention so I'm gonna make something that requires right okay yes that requires a listener to listen mm-hmm. um, and if uh, if the listener's attention doesn't get to the good part, that's all right with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on on this unreleased album, uh, there's three six or six, seven minute tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one track where you don't actually find out what the track's about until two and a half minutes in. Right. Okay. Yes. And it, yeah. So there's a track. It, it seems like an acoustic guitar piece, mm-hmm. uh, and it seems like an instrumental album. But halfway through the third track, okay, something happens. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well. Um, yeah, I think we'll. Uh, there's a thing. There's a lot to pick, probably pick apart in that new album. So let's finish the yeah, finish the story of of the of the musical career thus far. Then, um, so you you got into Prague. That was where we got to. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then I think during uh, the early part of my twenties, I uh, yo-yoed between. Belfast and London. Right, okay. So I'd go to London. Uh, my parents had moved to London. Uh, I'd go there yeah. and work for two, three months, build up some cash, come back to Belfast and try and get bands together and right. put gigs on and all of that stuff. So it's interesting you didn't do it the other way around because many, many musicians moved to London for the scene. Yeah. But rather... You stayed in the Belfast scene, even uh, with the option in London? Even with the option in London, yes. Mm. Um, hindsight is a marvellous thing, so I don't know. If, um, what, uh, <laughs> 2020 hindsight. Yeah. Uh, it depends on what your goals are. Yes, of yes, course. Yeah. Yeah. If your goals are um, sort of being successful in London, that was, I was, I was kind of more interested in uh, the, not the mechanics of music, but the musicality of music. Sure. Yeah, so um, cr- creating... Uh, interesting stuff and, and, and sort of working with good people so, mm, yeah. and that yeah and so it's less about the industry then it's more about the people as you say and uh, yeah the net, musical network and in, in, in my world it's nothing to do with the industry yeah um, well no I mean, it's a lot to do with it just depends on what scale you want to work at if you want to you know, reach a lot of people clearly you need to yes. uh, be thinking in, in, in industrial scales 
um, uh, these days, or possibly for the whole time, probably for the whole time, uh, the artist, the creator, is grist to the mill of the industry. Mm-hmm. So the industry picks artists rather than the other way around. Sure. Uh, which I think is a uh, actually think it's a negative feedback loop, and mm-hmm. um, you, you're going to end up getting a certain result of sameness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for example, I mean, in the last sort of 15, 20 years, there's been a lot of what I would call quaver bands coming out. They just playing quavers the whole time, yeah. yeah. So they've got got two styles: quiet quavers and then loud quavers. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, okay. Yeah, but I mean, uh, there's there's absolutely there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. Um, A great band, Nirvana, a great band, Mm -hmm. you know, and they like you know had the two volumes that quiet and really loud. Um, So if you're saying something that's really good, I don't think it matters how simply you say Mm. it. And in fact, you know, um, simplicity sometimes the, the more difficult thing to get absolutely I mean because that's that's the reality of music is that you know maybe the the pop industry is stifling artists but the reality is that if you know if some nuclear um, future occurred and the all instruments were wiped out and we were left with uh, collections of antique spoons music would still carry on it, it absolutely <laughs> doesn't would doesn't matter how limited it is you know? no no um, yeah if you have the desire to express and, and something mm-hmm. to, to hit or ping <laughs> absolutely yeah you get that um, and then uh, then I went to college for a year to study the guitar oh, okay in, in London so yeah it was a good year I got uh, I, I, I suppose I'd say I got my theoretical underpinning mm. there so um, learned about scales and modes and jazz harmony. Mm. Um, well, I mean, you say jazz harmony, but harmony is harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a that was a very uh, was a very worthwhile year. The net result of which was I stopped playing the electric guitar. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, well, yeah, it was it was Joe Satriani, Steve Vai time, mm-hmm. and everybody was playing ridiculously fast. Okay. Sweet picking, yeah, and again, I, I don't know. Yingwei, Malmsteen, all the rest. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, again, uh, I, I thought I didn't actually. I just thought I'm going to do something else now, and I got given a nylon string classical guitar that came from Argos Superstores. Fantastic. Well, that's what I wanted. So, are all great musicians these yeah, days start. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted a bit of wood with some strings on it, uh-huh. um, and at that point, then got into uh, finger style guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, starting with sort of ragtimes, Mark Travis, American influence music. I mean, the, okay. a, a big technique, and it would be what's called Travis pecking, which is mm-hmm. uh, which is two lines at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, got asked to do a few gigs. Uh, one of which took me to uh, Shetland Isles for the mm-hmm. Shetland Folk Festival mm-hmm. in 1998. And when I was there, um, a man called Alan Longmuir. Mm-hmm. Uh, who had a recording studio asked me if I'd like to make an album. Wow. So I said, yes, I'd like to make an album. Um, uh, made my first album, um, which got a load of great press, okay. uh, got uh, very well received, um, and I suppose that opened some doors as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so what year was this? That would be around 1999. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. 1999, 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, shortly after that, bumped into Eddie Reader, mm-hmm. uh, who um, had had a number one hit with her band Fairground Attraction with a song called Perfect. Mm-hmm. So uh, she came to uh, a concert I was giving in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say it was a concert. It was actually the 
festival club at a festival called Celtic Connections. Yeah, I think I read about this. It sounded, it sounded interesting. Yeah, so it's interesting. Yes, it's hand-to-hand combat with with, uh, with folk music and drinking. <laughs> <laughs> a sort of Viking Valhalla situation. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, she, uh, she, she was in the club one night uh, when I was playing and then she rang. Mm-hmm. Just said that she'd really enjoyed it, and if I was ever in London to say hello. Wow. So I went and said hello, mm-hmm. uh, and that turned into another great experience. Uh, lots of great gigs, traveling all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, America, Canada, Japan, was it? Yeah, got to Japan. Wow. Uh, playing. Um, I, so, you know, one memorable, memorable thing was um, playing Moon River. Mm-hmm. Uh, whilst Eddie sang and the backing band was the Royal Scottish National Orchestra mm-hmm. wow. and, and you know these really brilliant venues around Scotland that's amazing yeah it was really good yeah yeah yeah, yeah. want a bit of one of those sort of surreal moments as a musician uh, yeah um, the, the first gigs I did with her were uh, opening up for the Hothouse Flowers uh-huh. uh, around America and I looked around um, uh, the Flowers uh, invited us up most evenings to play a few tunes mm. including their big hit Don't Go mm-hmm. so it was great I was sitting playing Don't Go whilst the, the Hot House Flowers played and Eddie, <laughs> Eddie sang and three weeks before that I'd been kicking around you know Botanic yeah. Botanic Avenue yeah, yeah. wow so, can't make it up yeah absolutely the thing I find kind of interesting um, with you is uh, it seemed it seemed quite a clear cut path for you were there any like um as a musician, were there distractions in terms of, were there other potential paths for you, or was music always the obvious way forward for you? Uh, well, I came to the decision to be a musician, mm-hmm. or to be a musician professionally. Mm-hmm. Well, we we'll probably need to pick that word apart a bit. <laughs> um, uh, after uh, quitting university, mm-hmm. so I went to university for a very short period of time to study pure mathematics. Okay. Yes, and ended up f- fleeing Wales. <laughs> I gone to university in Wales and I had to flee. Um, uh, so yeah, I realised sort of sometime over the past ten years ago that music, wonderful as it is, had not been quite my first choice. Mm. Yes. So um, yeah, it, 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 the pathway in music had opened up, you know, after another one had closed down. Mm, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and yes, I made a deliberate decision to get everything finished up. You know, we've got loose threads hanging around from 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Mm. So yeah, um, I suppose about five or six years ago, I thought I'm, I'm going to just get everything that I, I started that isn't finished, finished. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, I just want to go to the beach and not think about anything now. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have a niggle, a bit, you know, um, I think you wanted to create that you haven't finished creating yet. Okay. Yeah. But you know, I think uh, another thing that you started is there available to finish. That's interesting. Um, what compelled you? We, we use the word niggle. Was that how it felt that there were there were uh, loose threads? Um, uh, it did feel a little like there were loose threads, but at the time I had no idea what they were. Like, ah, I'd okay. completely forgotten about ever having gone to university. That was like yeah. twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose, and you, I think you subconsciously as well, you want to not think about those experiences. If you know, as, as you say, you, you leave university and. Um, yeah, I guess you don't think of it as an option to go back. But so how how did you come about then looking at mathematics again? Uh, I picked up an innocent little book mm-hmm. um, called uh, One O Eight Four and All That. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so what drew you to this book? Uh, well, it was it was quite a small, nicely nicely made book. Okay. Um, and it explained in uh, advanced layman terms, but still layman terms, mm-hmm. um, a whole bunch of the things that uh, mathematicians uh, regard as their favourite things in all the world. Ah, uh, okay. And it was the there was an equation on the last page. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they'd set it up as in we bet you think E equals MC squared is the world's mm-hmm. favourite equation and it turns out it's not mm-hmm. there's another one by uh, a mathematician called Leonard Euler um, and it was just sitting on the, sitting on the, uh, sitting on the back page and I kind of knew what it meant mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew what all the symbols were there's you know, various, mm-hmm. various articles in, in mathematics there's the thing called the exponential function the imaginary number sure. uh, the circle number pi, all of that, um, and this equation had all of these related in a very succinct way, mm-hmm. but to me it was saying something organic uh-huh. yes, it, it, was descri- it was just describing a set of relationships um, so on one side of the equation you had a bunch of you know, symbols, and on the other side of the equation you had a number mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, well, that seems to make perfect sense to me, what's all the excitement about mm-hmm. yeah, um, and from there, just uh, yeah, my interest got, got piqued um, and then I was watching a TV show one night, um, and it was talking about a thing called the Basil problem, mm-hmm. which is well, it's, it's music related. It's got to do with, um, I suppose you'd call it articulations of the harmonic series. Mm-hmm. So the intervals that give rise to the notes that we use can also be expressed as simple ratios in mathematics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whenever you start um, multiplying together uh, these very simple ratios, interesting things start to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you take one harmonic series, which is just the musical notes, mm-hmm. and you combine it with another identical one mm-hmm. in a certain way, uh, you get a very interesting number uh, mm-hmm. out the other end. And um, uh, again, this made me curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number is uh, pi squared divided by six. Mm-hmm. So why on earth does interacting one harmonic series with another give rise to a number pi squared over six? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the pi squared bit didn't bother me. The six really. <laughs> why? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to get pi? Because this uh, pi yeah. is a constant. Okay. Yeah, you're you're going to get that all over the place. <laughs> sure. uh, you know, um, feedback loops. Are, you know, if something's feed loop, looping back on itself, chances are that the number that you know tells you how to go around in a circle might appear. Mm. Yeah, but the, but the six intrigued me. Okay. Um, and I then discovered that um, that particular result was one uh, result um, from a much larger problem mm-hmm. that's outstanding. Um, there's, uh, I think it started with 23 unsolved problems. Mm-hmm. A German mathematician, uh, David Hilbert, uh, set out 23 unsolved problems, which became known as the Millennium Problems, mm-hmm. um, uh, that he would like to see solved. I think 15 of them have now been solved. Wow, that's yes. fast. Uh, well, no, that was 150 years. Oh, was uh, it? Yes, that was over 150 <laughs> years. Soon not at all. Yeah. Um, and this particular harmonic series uh, notion is part of an unsolved problem called the Riemann hypothesis. Okay. Yeah. So uh, they do say that asylums are absolutely full of people claiming to be Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, asylums are probably full of, of people who've tried and failed to solve the Raymond hypothesis. <laughs> okay. And if you say you're, if, if you say if you say you're, you're thinking about the Raymond hypothesis, uh, I think you're largely regarded as Napoleon okay. in an asylum. So, <laughs> okay. but yeah, so uh, interest peaked, um, and uh, well, so um, I, I suppose another thing I was thinking around at the time it's the similarity and difference. Maybe it's just a linguistic distinction. 
uh, between logic and creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, a couple of things that happened. I'd, I'd worked with um, a composer in Scotland, a gentleman by the name of Andy Thorburn, um, and he had. Uh, he had been using a compositional method uh, which you could call top down mm-hmm. so, um, so so like bottom up composition you get to know every single instrument in the orchestra you know absolutely every little technical thing about it and mm-hmm. then then you build up to your finished product um, top down is whenever you f- maybe first think about what it is that you want to say mm-hmm. um, and then let the thing form from your beginning simple ideas of what okay. it was that you want to create at the end so I'd kind of been looking for that at the time. Mm. Um, so self-trained, uh, we kind of make up our own methodologies as we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I was I was I was very um, uh, grateful to be exposed to that. So uh, I was think I I thought um, uh, that if one later in life, what well, in the TV show it had also said that um, uh, no mathematician over the age of forty had ever said anything that was remotely interesting. <laughs> I was 42 at the time. <laughs> right? Like, what are you saying? What am I, I, I felt like just going out in the street and chugging myself in a skip. You know? <laughs> um, so I thought, I thought, okay, well, you know, um, they're not saying that for no reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, decades of training in a discipline clearly help you in the discipline. Mm. Um, so if I was going to look at something, I thought top down would be the way to look at it. <laughs> okay, yeah. um, and around the same time, I read a book called Blink. Mm. Uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. He's written a couple of very interesting books. His great book he wrote called Tipping Point. Mm. And then Blink. And Blink is about the capacity to instinctively assess something accurately in a short space of time. Mm-hmm. You look at it, and then the first thing that comes to mind um, is often an accurate assessment mm-hmm. of what you've just looked at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would try and blink the Riemann hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> Put this man on a list. <laughs> yeah, I thought I would try and blank it. So I had a very quick look at it. Uh-huh. I went, I just looked over it all. And then I uh, thought, right, okay, I have had an idea about what, mm-hmm. what's behind this. Um, uh, and uh, so I didn't, I didn't think I definitely got, you know, or anything like that, but, but I had an idea to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been following it ever since. Wow. Yep. And having, having a blast, I have to say. Really? <laughs> oh, an utter blast! Uh, yeah, mathematics is really—it's uh, fascinating stuff. Mm. Um, uh, it's uh, beautiful, elegant, um, perplexing at times, uh, but I also find it humorous. Mm. I think it's funny. Really? Yeah, just I have a peculiar sense of humor. Yeah. Well, I suppose it, it, because especially the area of mathematics you're looking into, it's all about how things interconnect, and that's kind of what the fundamentals of comedy are. It's about how things relate to other things in unsuspecting ways. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can definitely see that. Yeah. So where are you... You you say you've been working on it now for... How long? Uh, ooh, six years. Six years. Six years. Even not full-time or anything like it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, f- for me in the creation of work, um, it's inspiration's the key thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Any time I've sort of tried to force anything to come along it never has mm-hmm. um, so uh, I, so my methodology I suppose you would call it I mean David, David Lynch was talking about transcendental meditation uh, a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and one of the things he was talking about was catching thoughts mm-hmm. so that, that would be my primary method for creating stuff mm-hmm. um, I mean you, you, you yourself open up uh, open, up, open up an area that ideas can come into mm. uh, you wish to create something there's something you wish to say 
um, and then uh, just notice what thoughts occur to you and mm-hmm. in a rigorous fashion always have a pencil and a notebook yeah um, and I, I can count the number of times um, I've wanted to create a particular thing and I've just written down what happens and something else can come mm. yes some creation that you were creating from earlier the finishing of that will come in mm. all of that it, it, it really it's um, uh, going with the flow of inspiration mm. yes okay yeah I've been thinking about that a lot because it sounds as if um, artists all creative people you know go through this process but actually everyone has quite disparate ideas as to the best way to be creative or the way in which it works for them yep. and you sometimes hear people talking about this that they feel as though whenever they're being creative it's not an active process but rather kind of as you're suggesting maybe more of a passive process that you open yourself up to the yeah to creativity and that it it maybe comes through you in some way so is that how you've you experience it as quite an intuitive process definitely an intuitive process uh the things that come to me though are areas where um i myself am interested Mm. so the the prime mover in it is yourself and what you wish to create okay um i've never accidentally created something i didn't want to create Mm-hmm. Yes, um, there's always been intention behind it. So there, there, there's a, there's, a, a, I mean, that's more than a twofold process. There's more than that. Um, the initial ideas come, but but then it's work for mm-hmm. for me as a as a okay. as a creator of things. After that, it's work. Um, the the individual elements can come just as ideas, but then after that, you have to okay. shape shape and form them into what you really want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like the universe provides the tools, but it's up to you to use the tools. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I do hear people say that they're not creative, which just makes me. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you, you haven't got your brain out of the wrapper. So, you know, the brain does it. Mm-hmm. You know, the brain's a. Uh, you could think of it in some senses as a transmitter receiver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, I suppose uh, whenever people say they aren't creative, um, you know, we're never going to know fully anyone else's, uh, you know, entire experience. But if we had to make a guess, you would, you would, you know, I'd maybe say that. <sighs> the way in which we've thought about creativity over the last X many however years it's been very you know finally constrained to yes. specific ways of expression or whatever yes um, you know we say that if you if you own a paintbrush and a palette that you're creative but yes you know. well this is actually touching on a slightly more serious issue that um, I've kind of become aware of recently mm. so uh, it seems that the the, uh, the educational ethos mm. here in Northern Ireland is following uh, a syllabus known as STEM, uh-huh. which is science, technology, engineering, mathematics. I have a couple of issues with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, those are all subsets of each other. <laughs> those aren't four separate things. That's true. Yeah, um, and uh, there's no mention of the arts or creativity mm. in this. So if you were to put the letter A in for arts, you'd get STEAM. But I, I don't think that arts is one-fifth of a syllabus. I think it's half your syllabus. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, yeah, the ways we think of creativity. Um, uh, yeah, I, you, need, you need creative people mm-hmm. um, to be talking about that. People, you know, mm-hmm. who uh, have a method, are producing, and mm-hmm. producing good work. Mm-hmm. That just that just needs to be included. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Like, for example, you know, I've been reading a lot recently about, uh, you know, people like Alistair Crowley, and you know, and he was someone who was trying to apply the scientific method to sort of esoteric ideas. Yes, and it's nearly the same thing has nearly happened with 
art and creativity that it's been so maligned by society in a way that, or it's been deemed unimportant, you know, since the Industrial Revolution or yeah. whatever, that it's just been left to, you know, this, it's been an esoteric field yeah. where, you know, artists have to sit and talk like this about, you know, well, I let the ideas come to me and we talk in these unscientific terms. Yes. But as you say, that's not to say that it's not possible to have great artists um, actually, you know, apply a rigorous approach to, as you say, a method. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's not unscientific. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all, uh, if, you, uh, if you take an overview of quantum physics, mm-hmm. um, there's the idea of what would be called non-locality. Sure. Uh, which is that we're not uh, we're not confined to a single point. Um, uh, the study of the small, or I, I'd actually call it the study of the small distinction, uh, atoms and particles, uh, would, would indicate that um, uh, various bits of the universe you could call them mutually mutually co-arising. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so uh, w- we have got and are known to have got deep connectivity mm-hmm. uh, going on between uh, you know objects, situations, minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are apparently at a distance, but we have this phenomenon of non-locality, mm-hmm. uh, which means that there's a, there's a uh, there's a connectivity. So w- whenever you're asking yourself a question to generate an idea for a creative project, um, you know, I, it, it's my view. If that's held in a mind anywhere, it can come to you. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, and the the scientific. Uh, channel of that you, you, you can there's uh, there's no locality there's a phenomenon called entanglement sure which is really what spooky I'm talking about spooky action yeah. at a distance spooky yeah. action at a distance yeah Einstein didn't like spooky action at a yes. distance now, whenever you look at his science mm-hmm. which is, it's, it's actually the science of separate objects mm-hmm. um, and it's the science of distance mm-hmm. um, and the, uh, the the small scale description of the universe doesn't align with the relativistic views yes, yeah. um, so uh, yeah, so, so Einstein called it spooky action the distance, mm-hmm. but we could just call it non-locality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So you think entanglement has some... Because this is... <clears throat> because if you listen to physicists, they'll generally talk in very real terms about quantum entanglement and yep. non-locality and everything, but they'll, they'll be sure to make the distinction this is observed on the quantum scale but yes. not on, on the macro scale well th- that's what they say I'm, I'm not in, in the camp of agreement around that mm. um, so uh, yes so you, you could put it this way uh, before physical reality manifests mm-hmm. it exists in a state of possibility yes so and the, the possibility around the particle model are things called probability density functions yeah so if a proton is walking in a certain direction, um, unless it gets interrupted, uh, it has a probable almost certain future given yes. by its probability density function. So I got to thinking then that um, uh, things that affect probability affect probability density functions. Okay. Yes. So um, I'm about to create a new future. I'm just going to haul it out of... Uh, out of uh, quantum possibility into manifest reality now mm-hmm. um, by affecting probability. Mm-hmm. Ready? Would you like a cup of tea? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, speaking, uh-huh. human act of speaking, 
affects macro scale probability mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and can call forth new realities. Yeah. Yes. So, um, the yeah the moment before physical manifest uh, physical reality manifests is a field of pure probability, mm-hmm. and if you can affect probability in some way, then you you can call forth realities. Mm-hmm. And a really handy way for human beings to do that is to open their mouth yeah. and speak in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if you're speaking from negativity that might not be that creative or if you're speaking from an old idea that might not be that creative but if, mm-hmm. if, you, uh, if you kind of know what you're doing a little bit and yeah we're, we're in a system the system has rules and they can be followed played with broken but, mm. but, but there's definite structure yeah well, this is a whole um, just can of worms really once you get into the quantum field of things because you know for example did you see there's a piece of research, I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, but a piece of research from Australian University this year, or last year, I should say, 2015. And it was about... Um, it was about using lasers to direct, um, I want to say protons, I don't quite rem- remember. Or, or was it molecules? I can't quite remember, Mm. but it was basically what they determined from this was that either of two things was happening. Either a decision in the future was changing the past movements, changing the past, essentially, changing the past of these molecules. Yes. Or nothing travels from point A to point B. Okay. It, It just exists, as you say, this probability density function, so long as it's not observed. But, yeah. but once it's observed, yeah. it collapses. And yeah. so, of course, physicists, you know, they don't want to break the rules of time and space. So, so they say it's probably the latter. It's probably that nothing travels unless, you know, nothing exists in reality unless it's observed. Oh, I mean, that's amazing and wonderful and fascinating. Mm. Um, yes, I have a bit of difficulty with what I would call the classical temporal model. Sure. And I actually think that trying to understand things in terms of the classical temporal model gives rise to a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. So I would just describe I, the, the classical temporal model and the second law of thermodynamics re, you know, regarding a system always moving to a, a state of greater disorder, I think, are, are, are closely related, um, and neither of them are giving us uh, the whole picture. Classical model, uh, the past moves into the, into the present, moves into the future. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, uh, and the way I think um, uh, about temporality uh, is that that direction is incorrect. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I sit here, 10 minutes from now is going to arrive. So, I don't have the now moving into the future, I have the future coming backwards sure. to the now. Sure, sure, sure. Um, if I'm standing on an island in the middle of the ocean and uh, a lighthouse a thousand miles away emits some light, mm-hmm. um, that light is coming at me. Mm-hmm. So whenever I, whenever I look at the light arriving, that's my experience <laughs> of the now, mm-hmm. but it's the, future, uh, it's the future arriving into the now. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, again, you know, really the past exists in memory. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. Um, and the memory of the past is not the same as the past. Yeah. Yes, so like I say, I have, I have more of a, a point model about temporality mm-hmm. uh, with a flow coming in and at you and really nothing except what you're remembering behind you. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's it's very important distinction, you know, 
uh, don't know if you ever listened to Alan Watts yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. and he's just fantastic for breaking down some of these ideas but he would he would make a lot of a lot of points like that like um, I heard him just the other day talking about well he, he likes to talk a lot about how you know you look at art from around the world and almost no matter where it's from it will it may depict scenes of nature but will ultimately have a subject within a scene of nature whereas he likes to make the distinction that Chinese art uh, historically has a much more I suppose um, complete perspective because it shows scenes of nature with you know the subject as the human subject being just as a part of nature or whatever so he was big into this idea of you know you're an appendage of the universe yes in the same way as a wave is an appendage of the ocean yes and he I thought this was really fascinating the way he described it he says we have this conception of travelling through time and travelling through space but that's really only a byproduct of our ego our sense of self and he says but the sense of self is like a ship's radar apparatus. It's the ego is there so that we don't bump into walls and fall down sets of stairs. Yes. But it's not. It's not our fundamental being. Yes. It's it's, it's the it's a navigation apparatus. Absolutely. But, uh, and and it gives rise to a lot of these perceptual problems, as yep. you're saying, of yep. traveling through space, traveling through time, when could, as you're saying, just as easily be the other way around. Could just do it, yes. Uh, ego is a fascinating area. Yes, I was mm-hmm. thinking about that. Um, the ego is that your the set of your identifications. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, well, now, um, yeah. There's, and, and some philosophies there would be the notion of abnegation of self. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think um, sort of the abnegation of being pompous about self mm-hmm. is certainly a very useful and valuable thing, a very leveling thing. Um, yeah, and on a on a fundamental level, uh, we are all part of the same thing expressing itself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but on another level, on the everyday walking around practical level, um, I am here. Mm-hmm. It's not that there is no self here. Yes, there's uh, there's there's no fixed permanent identification here. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a point of reference wherever wherever there are eyes and a brain or an experiencing mm-hmm. entity there is a point of reference mm-hmm. um, and as I say some of the philosophies uh, would maybe try and wipe out that there is a point of reference right, and, yeah, okay. yeah, I don't in, in my world view um, hello yes here I am uh, point, point of communicating consciousness here mm-hmm. um, and then just uh I had this thought. I was in a I was, I was in a big hall recently, and there were lots of people in it, mm. and I could see everyone. And I realised um, right, everyone's uh, emitting or reflecting their light sphere. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you put a person in a room and they can be observed from any part of the room, they're actually filling the room. Mm. The light sphere of everybody in the room is filling the room. Uh, explain what you mean by light sphere. Uh, well, for me to be aware of you sonically. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a pressure wave emanating from you when you speak which is causing my sure. eardrum to vibrate I get the experience of sound uh, to be aware of something visually light has to have in the classical model light has to have uh, hit the object reflected off the object okay, yes. um, so light is uh, is being emitted from, from every object mm. in a perfect sphere uh, in every direction mm-hmm. yes okay 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 yeah. I haven't heard that uh, example before okay well if you take if you take time into consideration it's actually a light cone but yeah <laughs> 
four dimensional or something like that. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so, so but every single person is filling the room. We're all filling the space. We're all everywhere mm. all at once. Cer- certainly in the visual scheme. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if you can be seen, uh, light from you has to have uh, travelled to the, the, the point that's viewing you. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So this is interesting how this interjects with. Um, the creative world and the world of music and everything so has this has this insight or this idea of you know of people being of of non-locality and all matter being um, you know probability functions and everything how has this affected do you think the way you look at art has it broadened your horizons has it has it um... well um, I got to a point about 10 years ago where I no longer knew why I was sitting on a stage playing a musical instrument. Right. Um, uh, I wasn't enjoying myself and I didn't want to be there. Really? Yeah. Uh, Did you in the beginning? Uh, yes, um, but that was before maybe getting um, sucked into the industrial machine and, <laughs> you know, spat out the other end. A twitching rag of a human being. Um, so, uh, yeah, at that point, um, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd also I, I read a book called Effortless Mastery. Mm-hmm. which is by a jazz pianist called Kenny Werner because mm-hmm. I've been having this experience I'd actually been having the experience of uh, you know travelling all over the world playing really great stages whenever I was reciting a tune no problem mm. uh, but when it came to soloing or something like that I felt I was restraining myself okay. a little bit uh, and I wanted to address that um, was able to address it um, by reading uh, start, started to address it by reading this book Effortless Mastery mm-hmm. uh, and that result of that was was that I stopped playing for five years wow yeah. <laughs> was that the intended effect of the book uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't the intended effect of the book it wasn't the intended effect of... oh sorry yeah, yeah. very unprofessional <clears throat> sorry about that that's right uh, sir so reading the book caused you to stop playing for well, five years. Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to shake off all the dust of all the old playing, mm. and yes, I also wanted to improve. I wanted to improve in technique. I wanted to improve in musicality. Mm. Um, so I had to let the, all the old ideas fall away. Um, I did not realise at the time that was going to be five years. Yeah, okay. But, but, sure. that, but that's what it turned out to be. Um, and then after that period, up took it again. Um, how did that feel? Uh, oh, it was a grind. It was the last thing I wanted really? to do. Oh, I did not want to do that. I did not want to sit and practice. I did not want I was, to think about it. I was just thinking it. it was going to be just a sort of burning bush experience. No, joy no. And... It was a pulling, <laughs> pulling teeth experience. Yeah. Um, uh, but I was able to address two things. I was able to... Um, so one of the things I did, for example, was I went back through all my old repertoire old tunes and rebreathed them. Okay. So um, there, there were periods where if there was a fast passage, I would disco- I discovered that I was either holding my breath or breathing quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, I went back and sort of just kept a nice, you know, a nice long, like a whale swimming underwater breath, mm-hmm. rather than you know, you know, flying fish breath, <laughs> okay. something like that. Uh, and that really just you know uh, that even that, that one thing really changed the, the whole entire experience. 
Wow, it made it more uh, pleasurable experience to play. Well, absolutely, yes, a, a little bit meditative and peaceful as well. Wow. Um, so, uh, yeah. Well, well if you're, when you're in front of other people, you can get a little bit panicked or anxious. Yeah, yeah I, I have a good thought on that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do that, you breathe more quickly. Mm. Yeah, and that gets adrenaline pumping around your system. Sure. Uh, oh, yeah. And that's a feedback loop. And before you know, it, you're going to be playing safe when playing. Mm. And if you're playing safe when playing, you're not playing. Mm. You're playing safe. Well, I mean, this is this is why musicians have a absolutely infamous relationship with drugs. Yes, indeed. Yes. It's because it induces a state of of freedom or yes. Um, see, the thing is, I for myself managed to figure out freedom from what. Um, and I, I kind of got that. So I, I mm. got I got that you know sometimes you think your adversary is in the room. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, your adversary isn't in the room. That's you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's you. Yeah. So you, you're projecting your own your own critical mind out into and onto the audience. Yes. And then playing safe in order not to agitate it. Mm. Yeah, but it's you. You're mm. doing it. You know the audience is there to listen to you. And they, you know. Um, they're not judging mm-hmm. or some of them are but then again that's their judgement system mm. and it's really got nothing to do with you mm-hmm. so getting that was big um, uh, and another thing was really big again whenever you're performing or playing you think something's riding on it yes yeah there's nothing riding on it <laughs> <laughs> these, these are just keys for life I yeah. think as well <laughs> yes I wonder whether it was a good book I'm telling you it was a good book um, yeah there, there's, there's, there's nothing riding on it and it doesn't matter uh-huh. Uh, um, so what what people really like to uh, be present to or uh, experience is play. Mm. Yes, and when when you play, you can fly. Mm. Um, so the, the presentation of music in a non-play way, uh, which is very understandable. Um, I've been there. I understand that. Um, it just gets a certain effect. You have to push it a little bit more. Mm. Um, so yeah. So it's yeah. It's important. I, I, yeah. Well, you know, if you want to be an improviser. Um, if you want to um, uh, play in an orchestra, participate in an orchestra, that's a completely different discipline. Sure, yes, of course. And, and requires different you know, different disciplines to, mm-hmm. to be able to, to produce. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So you don't actually you don't actually endorse this across all all methods of performance. Absolutely. No. Absolutely. No. 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 Activity. But for you, this was the key. Yes. Uh, horses for courses. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, so one of the, one of the things that makes music interesting to me is that it's the interplay interplay between forces. So um, you you know, if you if you've set up a harmonic structure, uh, you know what point A it's going to do this. You know what point B it's going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that requires a certain knowledge base and application. Um, but then if you want to you know wing out a great jazz solo over it, mm-hmm. um, you need to be able to access that part as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so again, it's methodology and it's creating it's creating methodologies that are fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. The purpose is what you yourself want to create. Sure. Yeah. I find that fascinating. The idea, as you say, quite literally of rebreathing the pieces. Oh, yes, that so, so what? What do you think? It, you needed that time off to to have that completely different perspective. Do you think you were too locked into the sort of you had the blinders on in a way whenever you were playing of just thinking too rationally about it? Or uh, well, it had become it had become a little bit industrial okay. at that point, which meant uh, go to city B, do gigs A, yeah. drive to the airport, all of this, all of that, um, which didn't leave any room for growth. Yes, sure. So if you're if you're doing the same thing, then you're not growing. Mm. Um, and uh, to keep well uh, I, to keep producing work that you know one is pleased with that may or may, or may not have an appeal to an audience 
Um, you just have to keep growing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, you look at you look at you know the Beatles' first album, and then their last. Mm-hmm. There's clearly you know growth of, of course. And but you can see the seeds are there. Yes. Yes, the seeds are there, but you need to water them in an appropriate way. Yeah, yeah and just the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, as you say, of the traveling between gigs and everything that goes around it, because sometimes. Uh, I feel like that, you know, especially the more of the business side I see of music, that all all the talk, you know, within industry and between band members and and the people you play with and you have this intimate relationship of playing with, um, it all revolves around everything but music, you, you know, and uh, you know people talk about you know on stage that's where the magic happens, but and that's a cliche, but it really is because. You you band together and and everything is is talked about superficially surrounding this experience, but then it's actually just the, the there's such an odd and mysterious thing to the actual performing itself, and I think many 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 musicians just go through life really not analyzing sure their own performance or analyzing the, their experience. Yeah, there's a there's a very 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 definite confusion of roles going on in in the modern industry as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the creating artists are also for some reason for some reason expected to be marketers, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, you know. A, 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 a ship with two captains is never going to agree on, on the correct direction to go. Mm-hmm. Um, creative people are very good at being creative. Mm-hmm. Um, as again, I regard the, the, the creatives are the prime movers. Industrial thinking would have it the other way around. They would have it that the industrial thinkers are the prime movers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's to feed an industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I would actually suggest that uh, either creatives need to maybe stand up mm-hmm. for ourselves a bit more and say, no, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, band members or the, the creative people are not promoters they're not agents they're not mm. this they're not that yeah um, uh, and then that would leave uh, the space in which to talk about music or create music or play with music all of that mm-hmm. yes but I, I just think that the, the artists are expected to wear seven different hats at this point yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah please uh, so yes, whenever I started playing again, as, as well as upgrading on technique and rebreathing, um, I wasn't going to set foot on a stage until I knew exactly why I was there. Mm. Um, and I really, the previous experience had been that I was often there uh, to be paid. Mm. Yes, and um, in many walks of life, swapping time for labour mm-hmm. is an absolutely you know great way to get about. Uh, for the sort of artistic creator, um, you're, you're really, you're, in, in my word, uh, you're creating the the things to be beautiful in and of themselves, mm-hmm. um, and uh, with sticking the, the pressure of earning a living mm-hmm. uh, into your sort of creative art form um, had been one of the things that had soured it for me the last time. Sure. So, uh, don't get me wrong, I love getting paid. <laughs> I absolutely love getting paid. Um, uh, the thing is, it's, it's not the primary motivator, it's the result of why I'm there and not, okay. the, not the goal of why I'm there. Sure. Or it's one of the results of why I'm there. So, uh, okay. I thought when coming back to it that I wanted to, you know, uh, inspire, um, mm-hmm. create beauty. Um, and yes, uh, hi. 
uh, possibly even create a little bit of excitement and uplift. Mm, okay. Yes. So whenever I started uh, performing again, um, that's that's now why I do that. Mm. Um, I also now see the value uh, sort of in, in community of music. So I've got a, a project mm-hmm. called the Belfast Guitar Orchestra, yes. which is uh, approximately twenty five people with guitars and basses and all sorts of things show up every Monday night mm. and we make a massive big noise mm. yep and we all get extremely good vibrations from the room uh, <laughs> so, yeah with uh, 25 people all playing Mr. Blue Sky yeah yes on Monday and that's extremely good fun well it's funny because I think it's interesting the way you say well first of all because <laughs> you know you for example have you ever heard of I can't remember his name but it was it's a historical great city of you know Indian Hinduism, who. Thank you. Thanks. Um, yeah, there's a historic great city of Indian Hinduism, who, on his you know whenever he turned 16, he laid on on the floor in his living room, and his father said you know what are you doing down there, and he goes I'm not getting up until I know who I am, <laughs> you yeah. know and this is your experience of. Of not getting back on stage, but as you say, you want you decided that you wanted to inject some excitement. And sorry to bring up Alan Watts again, but you hear him ever talk about uh, novelty, and you know, and it, it really resonated with me one time. He was just banding about the idea that you know, there's a lot of a lot of things make sense when you see human beings their their purpose not being just to self replicate and and uh, you know and just go forth and prosper and all the rest of it but actually that humans are novelty seeking machines mm, yes <laughs> and it actually explains a lot of kind of artistic um, pursuit yeah and I, whenever you talk about the orchestra that's all I can imagine is you know what's more novel than having all banding all these people together and as you say making these vibrations and um, yeah and it kind of it illuminates some sort of ideas about what is why do we get joy out of these things why do we get joy out of I think uh, I think the joy comes up in the communication mm. and whenever you're playing a musician you're playing uh, playing an instrument you're present mm. yes well some people are present um, uh, whenever you're in flow when everyone's strumming out the chords it's mm. very presence based mm. um Experience, and I think the joy comes up in the presence and the communication. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and I would, um, I would regard that as vital. Yeah. And by vital, I mean life affirming. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's just it's good energy. I've been thinking about that recently. Um, you might have heard that yourself. Like, you know, there's so many different theories of consciousness out there, but some people believe that consciousness doesn't exist in the same way. With an individual, for example, if you had a, a an individual born on a desert island, that they wouldn't develop the same consciousness that we have living in communities. Sure, that we do, and you know, and it's an interesting idea because it kind of pops up all throughout, even you know, ancient religions and civilizations and everything. Even the, in the Bible, you know, Jesus says, "Wherever two or three people are gathered in my name, I'm there." Yeah, you know, but not individually, which is really interesting. Yes. So you think there's something special to the relation of musicians playing together uh, yes absolutely I think um, things occur in communication well see communication is creative mm-hmm. um, so if you're in isolation um, your mm-hmm. communication is going to be limited mm-hmm. yeah yeah I mean even uh, that's what's something that's so good about 
something like this, podcasting, talking to people, you know yourself, people people talk with each other to hash out ideas or to hash out problems. Yes. You know, um, because it's in some odd way, I'm, someone being there as a kind of mirror to reflect Yes, your own yourself. You can access ideas that weren't accessible. Yes, individually. Um, yeah, and yeah. There's again. This is uh, this would be stated in a number of philosophies. You can only ever know yourself in relationship to others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's yeah. So it's uh, it's a reflective process. Mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm. and, and a, fe- a process of feedback also. So you've kind of taken uh, this idea of playing with people to its. Logical extremity, which is twenty-five people. <laughs> well, if, if ever, playing guitar, if, if, if everyone that has uh, participated in the guitar orchestra were to show up at one time, there'd be a, <laughs> there'd be a hundred people in the room. Would there be more It'd than that? Be could, yeah, enlightened immediately. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. God, that would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good idea. That's yeah. great. Um, so we were also just talking about your recent lecture, if that's what you would call it. Sure. That you gave. Uh, number theory for artists or for musicians? Yeah, well, for artists. For artists, great. yes. Um, and how did that go? Uh, it went very well. Um, we uh, presented it here in, in Lawrence Street mm-hmm. in this great room. So uh, Kit and I are sitting in a great room with a, a wood-burning stove and we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're sitting in couches. It's great space. Um, and they're keen to do more stuff in here. So, yes, I presented a talk, uh, Number Theory for Artists. So, um, yeah, two of the questions we explored are sort of what are what, what is number theory, uh, who is a mathematician, and who or what is an artist. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm interested in, in mathematics from uh, the perspective of what I would call natural mathematics. Mm-hmm. So if you're crossing the road, for example, and a car's coming towards you and it speeds up, uh, you speed up. Mm-hmm. which uh, is an example of action predicated upon comparative analysis mm-hmm. uh, or calculus. Mm-hmm. So people think they can't do maths, uh, uh, um, whereas uh, the human brain is a master mathematician. <laughs> Just subconsciously. Um, you may have had the experience uh, you know, when you're shopping for hand cream, or I actually I, I observe this when I'm in the off-license as well, so you're doing a, you're doing a volume volume uh, sorry a, a, a value volume calculation. Sure, sure, sure. Yes. So if you're looking at the hand creams and you can get half a ton for fifty p or you know uh, point point two of a gram for you know uh, a different amount of money, you're very able to mm-hmm. perform that calculation. Supermarkets are very clever. They'll they'll do what's called they'll price point you into a particular purchase. Sure. Yes, and. Um, it may be the largest volume, but it's usually the highest price as well. Mm. So um, yes, I so so a supermarket would be well versed, for example, in taking advantage of the fact that the human brain uh, is is a natural mathematician. Oh, absolutely, they have yeah. psychologists and all working on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so we looked at uh, we looked at some entities known as fractals. Yes, which are very interesting. Which uh, first showed up in economics. Really? Yes. Was that where the idea was? Because it, it's a rel- relatively young idea. It is, yes. Like the, yeah. the, the 80s, um, the amazing pictures that you can see of fractals um, uh, are only generated by uh, millions of calculations. Mm. But since we've been able to do the millions of calculations, we've got these great images out of very mm. simple formula with w- uh, wonderful, strange, interesting properties. Mm. Uh, yes, uh, Mandelbrot. 
So uh, there's an entity known as the Mandelbrot set, which is like the granddaddy of all fractals. Sure. Um, it was but Mandelbrot, uh, he was examining the fluctuations in cotton prices on the stock market. Really? Yes. That's what started. And he noticed that the ups and downs over the course of a year were the same general pattern as the ups and downs over six months, over a quarter, over a week. Wow. Over a minute. Over, wow. Over <laughs> A lot of activity there. Oh you, you've got a, you call that a complex dynamic system. So you, you've got a lot of individual things going on. So yes. So all of a sudden we have fractal behaviour in economics, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting idea whenever it comes to thinking about economics. Mm. So we had a look at that. Um, we did a little bit of uh, natural counting with a thing called the Fibonacci series, mm-hmm. uh, which is a series of numbers that uh, you can you can readily observe. Um, all over nature. Mm. Um, again, listen, a little bit of fractal stuff going on there um, because we've got uh, Fibonacci patterns on the scale of galaxy. Mm-hmm. We have them on the on the scale of flower head. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have them on the scale of, of human features, human forms, all of that. Mm. So, uh, yeah. So uh, And then the, the third thing we had to look at, uh, which really tickles me, is a thing called uh, the incompleteness theorem. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, uh, mathematics was keen to prove itself consistent. So uh, good luck with that is what I was saying. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, mathematicians seemed to want to know that their view of the universe was self-consistent. So they were trying to calibrate their own tool, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was ground until uh, a man called Kurt uh, Gödel appeared. Uh, and in 1931, he released a thing called the incompleteness theorem. Mm-hmm. So what he showed was that uh, any formal system, uh, the, the, the phrase is uh, an axiomatic formal system. So what, what is that? That's it's a set of rules. Mm. So any system that's based on a fixed set of rules, uh, it's not that it might contain contradictions, it's that it does contain contradictions. Okay. Uh, and he distinguished two ways in which that happens. So um, uh, the, the, the first way in which it happens is is that uh, every logical system will contain at least one what's called a Gödel sentence. Now we encounter these in the everyday. Mm-hmm. So again, this is, this is my interest is in, in natural mathematics. Uh, really, what I was thinking was if uh, if the human mind can conceptualize it to such a degree that it can set it out in a formal symbolic system, mm-hmm. like a theorem or something like that, then it might be something that the human mind is also doing. Mm. It might just be describing itself. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first part of the incompleteness theorem is uh, this production of things called uh, Gödel sentences. So here's an example of a Gödel sentence. Uh, this is not a message. Mm-hmm. So if uh, if the mass- if the if the if the statement is true, it's false, and if the statement is false, it's true. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, a friend actually speaks in Google. A friend of mine speaks in Google. <laughs> so was, he, he rang me up and said, uh, he rang me up on the telephone. I asked the telephone, and he said, Colin, I've lost my voice. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which just cracked me up. Um, so, so really, uh, um, really, what's going on there in the grammar is that we've got looping has started. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so we know that a computer can hang. Um, uh, we've also seen uh, m- many of our friends go round in circles. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, uh, if we're only experiencing or distinguishing life through our set of rules then uh, at some point we're likely to fall into one of the, one of these infinite loops. Right, okay. Yes. Okay, okay. Yep. That's an interesting extrapolation. Yeah, interesting extrapolation, yes. And then the other incompleteness theorem, uh, which I'm going to suggest, shows up in interpersonal uh, relationships. 
is a statement of this. Um, uh, in any formal axiomatic system um, of logic or rules, there are true truths that exist outside the axioms. Yes, okay. Yes. So what that looks like is is that we as humans are 100% convinced we're right about something, mm. and then the black swan appears, mm-hmm. and the whole worldview collapses. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So that the black swan would be a true truth outside what the axioms we're telling mm-hmm. you is possible. So what, what that where that shows up for humans is in what they consider to be possible. Mm. Yes. So uh, you're not aware of all the possible possibilities in any circumstance. Mm-hmm. And it's good to know that. Yeah. Um, and if we're thinking logically, then uh, logic's lovely. It, it has stepped up, uh, courtesy of Kurt Gödel, and said, um, "I don't cover all the bases. <laughs> yeah, You're yeah. going to have to use a different part of your brain." Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, so that was that was the third part of the talk, and as I say, that's the part that I really I really enjoyed. Just, uh, yeah. I read a point earlier today, actually, from a previous guest in this podcast, um, Stephen Butler. He runs a great blog, and I'll send it to you. Probably enjoy it. But he was writing. He writes a lot about, um, well, these topics basically. But he was talking about the importance of not understanding or not trying to understand, or not, and he, I can't remember who quoted, but the line was. Um, to have an opinion is to overlook something. Oh, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, yes. Yes, I heard myself say to a friend recently, do you, do you expect me to just sit here while you opine at me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, again, you see, uh, going round and round and round and round trying to understand something, that's kind of one of those infinite loops. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's, there's, other, yes there, there's other accesses to experiencing something than through understanding. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's what they say that about it as well. You know, the problem of consciousness and everything. And well, not everyone's saying this. Certainly not, um, not uh, neurosurgeons or anything like that. But uh, but people have said about the problem of consciousness that we're basically trying to probe the human brain, which is a subjective tool. It's a subjective place, and we we need it's a subjective problem. We need subjective tools to crack that problem as okay. it were. and so that, that using using the uh, hard science that we've gathered over the last few hundred years and uh, using logic and everything that's got us thus far is proving pretty useless to solve the problem of consciousness yes well I, I would suggest that the predicates are incorrect mm-hmm. um, so talking I mean uh, Gödel was I don't know if he was making a point um, but there's a point that can be taken Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, the human mind. Let's let's describe it as an element within consciousness, mm. and let's describe the capacity of logic as an element within the human mind. So, if that part of your brain um, is what's driving the bus, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, you, you can have large agreement, uh, you know, abroad for the way of doing things is as told to you by logic being the accepted way of doing things. Mm-hmm. This kind of getting back to what I was talking about, that notion of STEM versus STEAM. Mm. Um, uh, if that's your way of going about it, um, I mean, logic would tell you that you're separate and over there, and mm-hmm. that the door's over there and that I'm over here. Logic mm-hmm. would tell you that. 
uh, we know from quantum physics that that's not an accurate picture or that's not mm -hmm. the, the only way in which to experience mm -hmm. things. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so I think the, the predicates of separate minds and separate brains and consciousness not being a shared experience is not a sound predicate. Mm. Um, now, whenever you're looking at that from uh, the left brain logical point of view, you're not going to understand it. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's not going to make sense to you. And if it doesn't make sense to you, um, then you're going to reject it. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, another interesting aspect of, of all of this, and in particular the, the lock-in with only logical thinking, which, as Google showed, won't get you all the answers, mm -hmm. um, is the action of, I suppose I'd call it trauma and fear um, sort of uh, in, in populations. So if you have been traumatized or you're anxious or worried about something, your brain's automatic systems will go into logical mode. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that look like? That looks like it's uh, your brain for you will compare uh, un unfolding events against what you already know to check for threat or danger, mm -hmm. uh, which is linear thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and that creates your experience of temporality as past, present, future in a straight line, which, as we were saying earlier, isn't the only, the only model. But um, in an environment where concern and fear are active, then um, I suggest, again, we're going to get this purely logical left brain lockdown mm -hmm. um, uh, approach to things mm -hmm. yes um yes we're going to get that i i i actually find science today or the articulations of science uh, utterly unscientific mm -hmm. yes um, i think the idea of uh, science without creativity i think science without creative creativity is at best history and at, uh, and at worse a religion mm -hmm. yes um so yeah well as yeah um I guess the, you know, as I can remember who it was, but they articulated it as, you know, there are trends all throughout history and, you know, don't be fooled into thinking that there aren't trends in yeah. scientific thinking sure. as well. And, yes. And, uh, and that's a criticism many make is that we're, we're in an age of great um, materialism, you know, sure. and not, not in the sense of, you know, material girl in a material world, but rather... Um, classical physics and yeah absolutely materialist um it's superstition is a good word for it mm -hmm. um you you would ask 10 people in the street what a superstition is and they'd say something about walking under ladders or black cats mm. uh, that's not a superstition um when you're in a superstition you don't know you're in a superstition it's, it's the background worldview ah okay yeah <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know yeah um yeah, i would suggest that the, the the materialist scientific worldview um is such a superstition mm -hmm. yes but, but it comes up in 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 in, in sciences in places like gravity and relativity mm -hmm. which enshrine the idea of separate objects mm -hmm. so we've got a lovely gable end um on uh annadale embankment there um, where it says, how can quantum gravity help explain the origin of the universe? I was just looking at that today, yeah. Yeah, I really like it. I, I, I was really pleased to see that. All, when I first saw that all those years ago, I thought, no, good. Mm -hmm. Right, that's a good question. Someone's yeah. talking. <laughs> I actually want to go on graffiti. How <laughs> <laughs> do you want to write? Well, I, I want to write on, uh, underneath that one, uh, either uh, it can't, mm -hmm. yes, um, uh, or on another gable end, I want to paint in equally big letters. Ah, go on then, tell us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. Because the question was asked about twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. Um, on that note, because I am uh, 
pressed for time, Great. unfortunately. But I think we've covered a lot. I think we did, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe to, to a fault. <laughs> Hopefully not. But um, you want to repeat your lecture series? Uh, yeah, we're going to do it once a month. First Tuesday Fantastic. of every month uh, here in Lawrence Street Workshops. Great. Uh, kick off 7 o'clock um, and there'll be a, a small door charge Mm-hmm. Um, to come to the talk, great. Um, yeah, I'm actually I'm taking it, or I'm, I'm, I'm you know, uh, uh, in a non-arrogant way, I hope I'm attempting, attempting to take a lead from Terence McKenna, great. Who, who I heard say he wanted to uh, raise the level of public discourse. That's a good way of putting it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm aligning with that. So you're you're here in the heart of sort of uh, student, you know, South Belfast, and yeah, to yeah. <laughs> raise the level of discourse. Yeah. Um, so don't want to be talking about you know newspapers. Don't want to be talking about media. Okay. Um, I've personally heard and heard enough of the downwards direction talking. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. I do. Great. Fantastic. So so people know where it is, and uh, and there will be Facebook events for that. There'll be Facebook events for that. Yes. Great. And your music can be found at your your website which is uh, colin-reed.com great there's an uh, there's an old website mm-hmm. with a younger man <laughs> his works appear on it uh, mine is yes I'm uh, colin hyphen there's a hyphen there for now okay. uh, yeah there's loads of there's loads of YouTube clips and free tab fantastic uh, yeah well thank you very much for doing this you're very welcome thank you